The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by the 2019 World Changing Women's Summit. Join us January 28th through 30th in Santa Cruz, California to nourish yourself, connect with other women in leadership, and elevate business. For more information and to claim your tickets, visit worldchangingwomensummit.com. That's worldchangingwomensummit.com. Hey there, podcast listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at WCWpod. If you haven't yet, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. You're listening to the World Changing Women's Podcast, where each week we talk to badass female founders who've built game-changing brands that are making the world a better place. It was an immediate kind of like, I'm taking this on. I want to do something to help. I had absolutely no clue what I was going to do. I just felt very strongly that something had to be done. (laughs) Rahama Wright has the type of personality that lifts everyone up around her. As the founder and CEO of Shea Yaline, Rahama is the driving force behind her company, which produces Shea Butter skincare products that empower women in West Africa. Shea butter is a fat derived from the nut of the African shea tree, which is often used as a rich skin moisturizer for beauty products worldwide. However, during her time in the Peace Corps, Rahama discovered that the women who were actually producing the shea butter were barely making a living. So after leaving the Peace Corps, Rahama set out to change that by creating a social enterprise that would work directly with shea butter producers to provide them with more than a living wage. And she founded Shea Yaline in 2005. I sat down with Rahama to hear the story behind how she made the leap from Peace Corps volunteer to entrepreneur and what lessons she's learned along the way in more than a decade of running a social enterprise. And fair warning, my producer told me that this episode might make you smile. I'm your host, Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media. Welcome to World Changing Women. So let's get in right away into the founding story. I always love talking to founders about their origin story and just understanding the nuts and bolts of how they created the incredible businesses that they're running. So just wanted to start with how did the idea for Shailene emerge? How did it even come about? Yeah, uh, it started when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Mali in West Africa, right out of college. I was assigned to work at a community health center in my village and supported the community nurse on providing healthcare services, primarily to women who were either about to have their babies or bringing their babies in for their uh, regular checkups, their monthly checkups. And so I would go to the community health center and essentially just sign in women because I had zero health background (laughs) and I was pretty useless (laughs) to the community. (laughs) And so I made myself useful by signing women in, um, holding babies when they were getting vaccinated, which is hands down one of the worst jobs because they start screaming and crying and they look at their moms like, how could you do this to me? (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, I really was struck by how many women would come to the health center and 
either had some health issue or their kid had a health issue and they were unable to to pay for medicine or pay for healthcare services. So by just being at the health center and seeing that, I started wondering how do women in my community make money? Um, what are income generating activities specifically for women in ag-based societies and rural villages? Um, and that's when I started researching income generating activities. I learned about shea butter, had no idea shea butter came from Africa, even though half my family is Ghanaian on my mom's side. And I was just like struck. I was like, oh, okay, so this product is made in Africa. It's made by women in Africa in 19 countries. And yet when I look at stores that sell shea products or brands that market shea butter, I see nothing related to women in Africa. And so that disconnect and feeling a sense of this is wrong. Why, why are these women who are at the beginning of this supply chain unable to connect to the marketplace in a way that allows them to generate sufficient income. So that started my obsession with shea butter. (laughs) (laughs) And over the last, you know, decade plus, I've been working on this vision of connecting shea butter producers and rural villages to the global marketplace in a way that allows women to create products in a safe environment create quality products with access to the right production tools, access to capital, access to the proper training. And then of course, linking it directly to customers right now in the U.S. um, through channels like Whole Foods Markets and um, hotels and our website. And, And how old were you when you had the initial spark, the initial idea? 23 years old. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're 23 years old and you find that shea butter is produced in Africa. You see this need. How did you actually decide to make to go for it? Like what what is that moment? Do you remember or was it this long obsession learning about it that it gradually came about? Like what was the moment when you decided this is what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a business out of this. Yeah, it was pretty immediate because I think for me, I wasn't looking at it as a business. I wasn't looking at it as, oh, this is a great business opportunity. I want to dedicate my life to, you know, becoming a shea butter mogul. It really (laughs) wasn't like that. It, It was more like, wow, this is so long. Like how this product gets to market is in a way that is preventing women from sending their children to school, preventing women from buying medicine for their sick children. So for me, it was definitely more of a, this is a a social injustice issue. And so with that, I was very, you know, I was sparked. I was just like, something has to be done. And over the years, I've actually pivoted because it was an immediate kind of like, I'm taking this on. I want to do something to help. I had absolutely no clue what I was going to do. I just felt very strongly that something had to be done. (laughs) And when I came back to the U.S., I initially launched a 501c3 nonprofit 
Um, and my whole idea was I'm going to help women organize. I'm going to help them gain access to training and production equipment because I really thought that the issue was a capacity building issue, meaning that women didn't have access to the proper resources. And if they did have access to those resources, then ta-da, the problem would be solved. Um, but then in 2012, I did a pivot because I realized I was only addressing one part of the issue, which was the capacity building issue. But there was another part, which was the market connection, um, because most of Shea that enters the global marketplace is actually made in Europe and Asia. Over 90% of Shea that leaves Africa is in raw material form. It's not processed into anything usable. It's very similar to cotton, to cocoa, you know, to these commodities. Many African commodities are con constantly and regularly shipped out in raw form. And when it's shipped out in raw form and it's not, there's no value that's added in the process, it really ensures that local communities are kept in an impoverished state because they're not able to benefit from the upside of the, the value chain and supply chain. So as I started really delving in, so to answer your question, it was an immediate, oh my gosh, I'm doing something like right now. But then it took me I would say five, six years before I really figured out the right structure to address the issue. And that became a business structure. Uh, and now I consider Shailene a social enterprise. Hmm. So that moment that you just said, like, I have to do something and you just kind of jumped in. What were some of the first steps? I, I always feel like there. I, I talk to a lot of young entrepreneurs and they always just kind of say, I have an idea or I, I want to address an issue and I don't even know where to start. And I often give them like the most basic recommendations along the lines of like, buy a domain name, come up with a branding, like just like start, just start doing something. Um, do you remember okay. what were the first things you started doing with Shailene? Yeah, exactly what you're saying. Um, setting up kind of the the structure, you know, applying for the Shailene International Inc., for example, and um, getting my articles of incorporation, getting a tax ID, like all of kind of the, the basic administrative tasks that you have to do when you're starting an organization or a business. And then started working on the logo, like figuring out, you know, what is this brand going to look like? And really uh, work, to work with a designer for a few months to develop kind of the, 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 brand, the brand around the, the idea and really wanting something that connected the fact that this was a product coming from a tree so that it was natural, um, but also really wanting to connect this idea of economically empowering women. So coming up with a tagline, transform your skin, transform a community. So those were the initial things that I did. And then I just started learning as much as I could about Shay because I really didn't know that much. And so I would spend hours on the internet pouring over articles and research studies and just really trying to learn as much as I could about this product. And then also wanting to learn a lot about the brands that were selling Shea products, like where were they getting their products from? How were they talking about Shea butter? What was missing? And so I went to stores and I looked at, you know, products on the shelf and I read the labels and saw that in most cases, Shea butter products 
that were marketed as shea, you turn the label around and the ingredient shea butter is all the way at the end. It's like the second to last thing that's in the product. And so really recognizing and seeing that the way shea butter was marketed was not really, it, it wasn't the real product that these women in Africa were making. And that's when I saw the the key gaps, which is one, most people think that all shea is the same and shea butter is not created equal. Not all shea is created equal. There are different ways of making this product and there are different um, processes. And what was really being sold as a shea product was a diluted, overly processed, overly refined product that was very different from what these women were. Um, we're creating in these communities. And so really spending time to see some of those gaps and learn about the gaps within the marketplace was, I would say, I probably spent the greater part of the first two, two and a half years doing that. So one of the parts about your story that I just love is this just ability to dive right in at the ripe age of 23 years old. And (laughs) I'm I'm curious from your perspective, because I, I talk to a lot of young entrepreneurs and a lot of business owners who have a lot of fear around those first steps about really jumping in. And I'm curious, where do you think your like courage comes from? Was that from your upbringing? Do, do, you, do you have any like semblance of an idea around why you have the capacity to just jump right into something like this? Yeah. Well, I think youth was definitely on my side. Um, (laughs) You know, I didn't have any responsibilities. Um, I was living, you know, as a Peace Corps volunteer. Like, and so I also, you know, I think that if I, you know, trying to create a business like later on in life in like my mid thirties, I probably would have more reservations than I did in my early twenties. Um, so I would 100% say to your listeners who are young, go for it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I also think too, for me, it was, it, the issue really touched a personal cord. And so my mom, um, had an extremely diff- different life, uh, growing up than I did. She was raised in a fairly conservative Muslim family where, you know, her, her role was, was not to go to school, but instead, you you know, stay at home, learn how to cook, learn how to keep house and essentially preparing her to be a wife and mother. Um, so there were a lot of limitations put on her because of her gender. And so growing up, I would hear the stories that she experienced as a girl child in, in this family. And it really, made me recognize that I had access to so much more than she did when she was growing up. And so that made me feel very responsible for the choices that I made in life and being the eldest of five and, you know, essentially being mom number two, in my family. <laughs> um, I always was put into situations where I had to be a leader, where I had to take a stand, make a decision. Um, and so that I didn't know at the time growing up that that was that kind of built in me this ability to take risks. And I think that having my mom's story and knowing that she really didn't have a lot of the same resources and then seeing the, the women in my community experiencing very similar things that she did 
was kind of the spark that really kind of had more of a personal attachment to the issue um, than I would say, you know, someone else who probably didn't have that same um, same story. And and what did your mom think about this idea when you brought it to her? She was like, I need you to get a paying job. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, that's all fun and dandy, but let's be real here. (laughs) And what does she say now? Oh, yeah. Now she's like bragging. and (laughs) (laughs) She saw me on some like interview um, many years later because I definitely did not get successful uh I even say still I'm I'm still kind of on the on the road I I haven't arrived um I'm not ever sure that actually happens when you're an entrepreneur and um I remember her calling me and I'm and I didn't know like she was watching something and I was like being interviewed and she called me and she was like screaming and she's so excited. I'm like, what's going on? She's like, I'm looking at you on TV right now. (laughs) And uh, she actually met some of the Shea producers that we work with Um, in 2011. We partnered with the Smithsonian Institute for their annual folk, folk life festival. And we were able to bring uh, three of our shea producers to the U.S. And they were making shea butter on the National Mall and teaching people about the product and why it's important to them and the traditional um, value and meaning in their lives. And so my mom came to D.C. for it. And it was her first time to really see what I, what I was trying to create and meeting the women, hearing their stories, and also seeing people coming up to our, you know, our tent on the National Mall and saying, hey, what's this product? And then going um, to the the gift shop and purchasing it and coming back to tell us, you know, they love the product, et cetera. I think that was a turning point for her where she was able to see the the vision become more of a reality. And so for me, I, I think that when you're starting something, the people closest to you won't necessarily be your biggest supporters in the beginning because in my experience you know my parents wanted to be very protective and like you need to take care of yourself you need to make sure that you know you can pay your bills etc but if it's something that you really truly honestly believe in you got to go for it you know eventually I think those folks who might not be on board earlier on will come around. My, my experience has been similar and it, it's very much, um, I think it's born out of a place of deep love and care and people mm-hmm. just wanting to see what's best for you. And when you come to them with crazy ideas, like <laughs> launching a magazine, um, family sees the the things that could go wrong. Um, and exactly. so I, I, I've experienced something similar and know that it is like from the sweetest place of love. And most entrepreneurs I talk to really have the same experience uh, of having some resistance from the people who are closest in their lives right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of that kind of beginning time, now that you look back on those early days, it sounds like there was one pivot that you made from 501c3 to becoming a social enterprise. But I'm just curious, when you look back now, is there anything that you would have done differently when you started? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's so important for anyone starting out in their idea, whether it's a nonprofit model, a social enterprise model, a business, 
socially conscious business model, start with your financials. It's so easy to kind of want to dive into like the marketing, the branding, the logo, the website and all of that. But at the end of the day, you want to make sure that whatever you're creating can be financially sustainable and really delving into your financial model will be the biggest difference in terms of your ability to be able to ensure sustained success as you're building and growing your business or your, you know, your enterprise. Um, I did not do that. (laughs) And when I look back on it, I should have spent a lot more time analyzing, you know, like my cost of goods, analyzing what my profit margins would be, analyzing at what point would I break even, um, all of that stuff. I paid zero attention to, honestly, until probably, um, yeah, year five, I would say year five. (laughs) Don't recommend that. Um, (laughs) um, I'm like, I mean, you give me a break too, because I was thinking nonprofit. <laughs> but even a nonprofit needs to have a, a solid financial model. So now anytime I get that question, I'm like, start with your finances. Don't even talk to me about marketing if you don't know when you'll break even. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a tagline we should put somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh, speaking of the financial component so I'm I'm always curious as well around how did people start with the funding um and then yours is an interesting journey moving from the 501c3 to the social enterprise but I'm just curious about your funding journey and what that's been like how did you get this off the ground and how have you sustained it yeah so initially I started with my Peace Corps readjustment allowance And every Peace Corps volunteer at the end of your service, you get a few grand to help you readjust back to living in the U.S. It allows you to pay rent for a few months until you can get a job, buy groceries, you know, kind of take care of your basic needs for for a few months until you can get on your feet. And so my adjustment allowance was around six grand, but I used that to start Shailene. Um, And then I worked for four years um, and used my income from that job to pay my bills as well as invest in my idea. And then I got a few grants. I got like a $10,000 grant from the Tides Foundation through family funds. I would do fundraisers in the DC area, like happy hour fundraisers that we would use the money for sending, um, equipment to the women, doing some trainings, testing the Shea, things of that nature very early on. And I basically bootstrapped for seven, seven and a half years. When I left my full-time job four years in, I would do like odd jobs here and there, like, you know, doing part-time work for an events company, um, doing temp work just so I would have my schedule and not be tied to a nine to five, which was, to me, was it was very limiting to do that. So I would, you know, I was a hostess. I would do jobs that I could work around versus being tied to a desk. And then, of course, I lived a very slim, meager lifestyle. I actually 
let go of my apartment. I went to one of my girlfriends and I crashed in her living room on a blow up mattress for almost seven months. Um, As you do. (laughs) And so I was not living, you know, I wasn't buying like Gucci and all that stuff. I I still wouldn't buy Gucci, by the way. But, um, (laughs) but I was just, you know, living, living like a Peace Corps volunteer in the U.S. (laughs) So I I just want to make sure that I heard the story correctly. So you returned from the Peace Corps, you used your allowance to start a 501c3, (laughs) rather than putting it toward your living expenses, you got a full-time job, and then were simultaneously building up the nonprofit at the same Mm -hmm. time, and you did that for four years? Yep. And then you left the full-time job, you took odd jobs here and there and built for another three and a half years after that? Yep. In that three and a half years, I did my pivot. And that pivot was really setting up because I I had to like look at where I was in my progress. And I realized in order to really scale, I needed to have a business structure that would allow me to take capital. And so I started learning about social impact investors and I took on... um, you know, advisors who are like, oh, you really need to consider setting setting up Shea Aline so that you can take investments. And so that's when I did my pivot. And the reason I did the pivot was financially. I was like, I can't keep bootstrapping this nonprofit. And if there's funding out there that's geared towards social enterprises, why not create one and then put it out there and see if I can get funding? And so a year and a half almost two years into my new model um, and kind of going out and pitching, 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 getting rejected, I was able through a personal connection to meet the head of the Pan-African Investment Company, which is a fund based in New York that invests in social impact businesses doing business in Africa, which was like the perfect, you know, investment thesis for what I was doing. After nine months of due diligence, I was able to secure my first round of seed funding. And between that and all of kind of the funding I had done previously and roping like my dad into giving me money and my brother, (laughs) I've like, I've raised over a million dollars for my business. Wow. I just, I can't, I, I've been there, uh, doing the pitch situation. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, you know, you said you pitched a number of times, you got rejected, you kept going. Like, what was it like to do fundraising? It was interesting. Um, because I went from bootstrapping, knowing nothing about VCs, knowing nothing about investors, to now like pitching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and honestly, it, it's so strange because I look back on it and I'm like, what was I thinking? <laughs> I definitely should have learned a lot more than I did um, uh, before pitching just because I was very ill-prepared um, for some of the situations I was getting myself into. Um, and it was one of those things where it's like, you know, baptism by fire. Like you just got to go through it. That was the approach I took. I think there's probably a much better approach, for example. (laughs) Um, (laughs) For example, I would recommend that folks maybe do an accelerator or an incubator or really learn about 
the investor world before diving in. I just dove in. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, and I will also add that it's so critically important to build relationships. Everyone, and or very often we hear the statistics of women not getting, getting access to funding. And when you look at African-American women, it's even less. It's like less than 0.02%. And I think that statistic is 100% important and we need to look at it. But I also think much more than just that statistics, we need to look at how are we preparing people to get access to funding? How are we preparing women and minorities to get access to funding? Um, the funding piece is one part of the puzzle, but then the preparation and understanding how to use your funding to scale, grow your business is another part of it as well. Mm. And, and when you, speaking of that time, so you brought in a full million dollars. Did you feel you were prepared by the time that you received the funding to be able to understand how to deploy it? Well, it was in tranches. So it wasn't like someone just wrote me that check. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I no. I mean, when I look back on it, I, I wasn't prepared and, you know, I think it took me uh, a a couple of years to be comfortable knowing that I really wasn't prepared for this. (laughs) Um, And I don't know. I think that when you go from bootstrapping and, you know, being the only decision maker to now having investors, having quite a bit of money. Um, and that also around that time, I, I launched in Whole Foods before I got investors. So managing that process of having products in retail and now being right next to larger brands and larger companies that were selling similar products, it was a lot. And it all happened within within like a two-year period. So I think there are a lot of things that I was trying to like process on my, on my end um, and learn and understand. And if I could change one thing, it would have been finding the right advisors because I think that I, I don't know how many entrepreneurs, especially startup entrepreneurs, are prepared to operate at that level if you don't have access to kind of the right advisors who've been there, done that, and who have your best interest at heart and who believe in the mission of your your business and want you to be successful, um, having those people is absolutely critical. Uh, before getting funding, I was like, oh, my issue is money. I have a money problem. And then after getting funding, I'm like, mm, I have a people problem. My <laughs> issue is people. <laughs> So, and speaking of people, um, at what point were you, it, was it when you got the funding that you were able to build a team around you or mm-hmm. did you, when did you start to be able to get help and not just be completely doing this on your own? Yeah, it was after funding for sure, because I was bootstrapping, uh, not paying myself, uh, working odd jobs here and there to just try to keep everything moving forward. So, you know, I would have friends who would volunteer you know, interns and things of that nature, but really didn't have a team that I was building around. So getting that infusion of capital helped me uh, to start building a team um, and to start letting go of having to like be in control of everything, which at first was a bit scary. But then as I became more and more comfortable with this idea of I'm not building something that will require me to be successful, 
um, but can be successful without me. And that took a little bit of time. And another thing I realized is it's a very special skill set to build culture and to team build. And it was something that I also was not very good at. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, I've had to go through team members. I've learned some of my strengths and weaknesses when it comes to managing staff, managing a team. And one of the things that I realized is that I'm I'm like a really great like motivator and like super, you know, I can inspire the team, but I don't like micromanaging or checking in to see if someone has done something that they're supposed to be working on. (laughs) And so having kind of um, an in-between where someone else who actually loves that and is like personable with other people and can help cultivate um, kind of bringing out people's best talent is a very special skill. And so learning that was really game changing in terms of like building the team. We've talked quite a bit about kind of building this incredible enterprise that you have. I'm curious, you might've named it already, but what has been just the hardest part about this for you? Figuring out what I don't know has been the hardest part. And being able to lean on people who know what they're talking about. Because of a really interesting started happening after I got my first round. Of course, we, you know, we did a press release and all of that. And now it, I was in a, this like position where people now wanted to like talk to me and wanted to help me get Shailene to the next level. And part of what I was talking about earlier in terms of being ill-prepared, I did not know how to gauge whether or not someone could actually do what they presented themselves to be capable of doing, which really sent me back uh, a few months, if not over a year in terms of progress made in the company. And so I think that that has been my challenge is really navigating. Uh, I read, a, I think it was a Forbes article about um, sharks, but not like shark tank, but like, you know, sharks who kind of feed on like entrepreneurs and, you know, represent themselves as like these like super wonderful, successful, like consultants who can help you get your company to the next level. And unfortunately I got caught up in some of that. Um, And it's one of those things, I don't know how I could have navigated that without kind of experiencing it, I guess. Um, But that has been part of a a huge challenge is really identifying the right people who can actually deliver what they say they can. Hmm. And and part of the reason why that has been a, a challenge for me, it's like, you know, when you start something from scratch, it's like your baby. So like when you know, you, you, you want to be successful and you, you want to achieve your vision and your goals and to kind of share that with other people who might not have the best interest of the, the business or the vision, it, it, it can be like a huge blow to, to your self-confidence and just trust in other people. Absolutely. And conversely, I'm curious what has been just the absolute best part about building this business and what has brought you the most joy? The women that I work with um, in Northern Ghana has been absolutely the best part. We had an opportunity to bring 
um, two women, Joanna and Gladys, to the U.S. Um, to tour the Whole Foods stores that were selling the products in the North Atlantic region. So like New England, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire. And that hands down, they flew into New York. I picked them up from JFK. And we literally rented a car for three weeks and drove around state to state. (laughs) And being able to experience that with women who historically have been completely divorced from this multi-billion dollar retail industry, who never even had a chance or opportunity to see what happens to Shay when it leaves their country, to have them standing in a Whole Foods talking about Shea butter, talking about how they make it, talking about how it's different and representing themselves and seeing the product on shelf, that hands down has been the best part of creating Shailene. Um, it's why I get up. It's why I created it. Um, you know, I would say that Shea butter is oversaturated in this market. In anywhere you go, you can find a product with Shea. But what has not been oversaturated is the visibility of women in Africa, the voice of women in Africa, who are the backbone of this industry. You cannot get a Shea product anywhere in this world. And a woman in Africa was not a part of that supply chain. And so to have that woman stand in a retail store that's so different from her day-to-day, from her rural village in northern Ghana and you know, it, it, that's transformative to me. Just being, it, it, it pushes up against global supply chains that historically have left them out. And that's what I want to be able to accomplish with Shailene is to show that we need to know where our products come from because it's not just a product, it's a person that's being impacted at the end of it. And being able to experience that with them. And it was kind of like a reverse Peace Corps, right? Because, you know, I got on a plane and went to Mali and served in a village. They got on a plane in Ghana and came to the U.S. And they got to experience that. So for me, it was it was definitely one of those turning moments and also like a full circle moment. So just a couple more questions here. Um, so I love asking this to, to entrepreneurs and founders. If someone in your life who you loved came to you with an idea for a business, what advice would you give them? Do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it would be the same advice, which would be, of course, I'd be thrilled that they're that they're trying to, to, to start something because I think everyone should try to do something entrepreneurial, even if they work in an organization or a corporation, they can still do something entrepreneurial. Um, and I really encourage everyone to try at least one thing within their lifetime. Um, but I would really hit them with the financial questions. I mean, I think when you have like the vision, the passion, you know, your why for what you're doing, then it becomes, well, how can you make this sustainable? How can you make this something that allows you um, to achieve the, the vision and mission, but also generate income from it, not only for yourself, but others. Um, I also would ask them how they're building social impact into their business. Every single business on the face of this earth should be a social impact business. I honestly believe that we need to do away with business models that keep people poor. We need to do away with business models that are keeping people enslaved 
and we need to do away with business models that use child labor. Like we're in the 21st century. Consumers need to take a stand and say, no, we're just not supporting those business models anymore. You know, business models that are completely destroying our environment. We don't need those business models. And so I'd really want them to figure out from day one, not when you've already become a millionaire, but from day one, how am I building social impact into my business? So I think that those are the two things I would want them to to respond to. I try to the best of my ability not to give advice. Instead, I try to ask questions that will allow the other person to explore further their idea. Because I remember being incredibly annoyed when I first started channeling because again, I was in my 20s. Everyone thought I was still like in freshman year of college. Um, (laughs) And I would get the most nonsensical questions or like advice that I'm just like, why is this person asking me this like I'm an idiot? (laughs) For example, like one person was like, well, you really need to figure out like, um, how to market yourself so that you're different from other people. (laughs) Really? This is like, wow, my mind is exploding. This is such groundbreaking advice. (laughs) Or like, hmm. (laughs) And so I try not to like jump into situations and like give people advice that they've not even asked for because it can be, it can be annoying. Um, but I do think that it's important for people to be challenged in terms of, you know, how are you making sure that this can be sustainable and how are you making sure that this is just not about money, but can also have social impact. Hmm. All right, Miss Wright. What is the most important thing in your life right now? Ooh, wow. That's a, that, that one's deep. Okay, Megan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The most important thing in my life right now is to be authentic Mm. in whatever I do. That really is important to me. Um, I I think it can be so easy to fall into living an image instead of living your life and being authentic and real about who you are. And I think that that's where I am right now is I, I really want to be, to be me, not you know, a caricature, an image, you know, a thing, but really exploring who I am in my most authentic being in my most authentic way is what I'm pursuing now, Hmm. or I'm trying to on a daily basis. I resonate with that. Um, (laughs) And finally, um, I know that. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. Um, so I, I don't know about you, but I'm having, uh, uh, sometimes I'm waking up in the morning and I'm turning on the news and I'm just Mm. like, I'm just feeling hopeless. Um, Mm. I'm feeling like super down about things that are happening in the world right now. And so I want to aggregate as many reasons as I can and for our listeners to be hopeful. And so I'm curious, what is giving you hope right now? Yeah, it's it's really hard to to look into the to the media and find it. I, I'm with you. For me, it's it, it's we need to look for the the stories and the examples that contradict what's in mainstream media. And I think for me, 
it's when I see, you know, I'll give an, a really quick story. Um, I was having a super, really, really bad day. Like I was working um, with a manufacturer who completely missed a delivery deadline. And it was just like one thing after another. And I had gotten on the train. I got off the train and I just lost it. I just started crying. And I'm like walking home, like sobbing. And there weren't that many people around me. But there was this teenage boy walking in front of me, maybe a few feet. And he looked behind and he, you know, he saw this like crazy woman, like sobbing uncontrollably. (laughs) (laughs) I really expected him to like, you know, keep walking and, you know, because teenagers, come on, they have a bad rap. (laughs) And I was really surprised that he stood and waited for me to catch up to him. And he said, ma'am, are you okay? And I think that when it comes to finding hope, we shouldn't have to look too far from our surroundings if we pay attention. And I was just kind of in that moment, I was first, I was like, hope in humanity, yes. But also the fact that he took time to check in on a complete stranger who was very emotional. And I find a lot of times people try to stay away from, you know, if you're crying or if you're if you have a lot of emotion, people don't necessarily, who don't know you, try to get close. And so for me, you know, I said, yes, I'm okay. Thank you. And he said, okay. And then he kept going. Um, that gives me hope. And I think that if we can take the time to check in on people that we don't know, if we see something that's happening and that we're present and we can show up even if that person is a stranger, that's that's how hope becomes amplified and grows, is what we're doing in our immediate surroundings. A huge thank you to Rahama Wright and the entire team at Shayaline, as well as to our incredible producers over at Story Pop Media. The World Changing Women's Podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. As a reminder, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WCWPod. A huge thank you to Nina Bernardin, our incredible podcast manager. Join us next week for an interview with another world-changing woman. And thank you, as always, for listening. Story Pop Media Production.